You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. He went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who, who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, How then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked, asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees says, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind, born, uh, been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been, bl- born, been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, 
and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is who, who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord, we turn to you this morning for your help in studying and learning of you through your scriptures. We know that the grass withers, the flower fades, yet the word of the Lord endures forever. Would this enduring word be planted in our hearts? Would, would streams of life flow from our hearts that have been grafted um, to, the, to the water of life himself? We pray, Lord, that this time would be profitable for the church, that this would be um, something that, that grows us, that strengthens us, that encourages us, that learns, that, that helps us to learn to cry out to you um, and, and rely on you in all matters. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, at the beginning of the new year, I started uh, by sharing four hopes that I have for our church in this new year, um, specifically as it relates to uh, the Gospel of John and the themes that we see going on through John's Gospel. Um, and those four things were transformative discipleship, fruitful evangelism, that we would abide in God's word and not bristle at opposition as we walk faithfully with our Lord. And today's passage is a sort of high-proof cocktail of three of those four hopes. We see transformative discipleship on display. We see um, the beginnings of fruitful evangelism. We see this, this guy who doesn't bristle at opposition. And as we abide in the words of Jesus, as we remain in John 9, 9 uh, I believe that the word of the Lord can have such a powerful effect in us that all of these things become ours, that they all become true of us as well. And one of the things that we saw last week in chapter 8 um, was this dialogue between Jesus and the Jews. Through Jesus' ministry, he has found himself at, at constant opposition with the day's religious leaders. And, and it really is intensifying throughout John's gospel. In fact, the last scene that we saw, Jesus was confronting them, addressing some of their, their pride, their arrogance, their misconceptions about him. And at the end of that ex exchange, they picked up rocks and tried to stone Jesus. He, luckily, he snuck away. Um, and today, we see a lot of that same hostility going on again. But in addition to that, that confrontational nature of Jesus and the Jews, we see the compassion, the mercy, the power of Jesus towards sufferers in John chapter nine. In fact, we're seeing a real-time demonstration of what is spoken of in Proverbs three, verse 34, where it says, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. We see this attitude of Jesus. He's confronting the arrogant. He's, he's confronting the scorners. And he has a hard, sharp word for them. But for those who, who have a contrite heart, those who are humble, Jesus gives favor. 
Now, as Jesus leaves the temple in verse one, we're told that he sees a blind man. Um, now, this may seem insignificant uh, for, for the story of seeing a blind man. How many blind men did Jesus probably see? All kinds of lame beggars, um, people cri- crippled and valid, all of the sorts. Um, and it could just very well be another guy on the street that Jesus walks past. But this is actually a, a moment of great significance, um, not just for this man. It's a great moment of significance when the eyes of the Lord find you, they rest upon you, that you are seen by God. And this is true in our lives as well. Now, this, this idea here of Jesus seeing this man is an, an allusion to the story in Exodus. If you remember, God's people spent 400 years in cruel Egyptian slavery, getting harder and harder day by day, and the people crying out to God for mercy. And in their mercy, as they cry out, God hears the cries of the people. He sees their, their status, and he is inclined to move toward them and relieve their, their misery, ultimately leaving in, leading in deliverance from Pharaoh and Egypt. Now, in the same way, Jesus sees this man in his misery. And as he sees this man in misery, he sees us in our misery and suffering as well. We see all kinds of examples of God seeing the misery of his people. One example is King Hezekiah. He's suffering badly. He's he's on his deathbed. In 2 Kings 20, verse 5, God says to him, it says, I have seen your tears. I've heard your prayers. Behold, I will heal you. Now, this speaks to God's attentiveness to all of his people, to all who claim him. In Psalm 56, verse 8, the psalmist points to the attentiveness of God. He says, God saying, um, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Now, this ought to be a great comfort for those who are suffering. This ought to be a great comfort for those who are in despair and and bristling with misery. Jesus doesn't overlook you. Jesus sees you. Jesus hears your prayers. And Jesus can anticipate your needs more than you know what your needs truly are. And what we see is that Jesus has this tendency to move toward the brokenhearted, the the, uh, flickering candle, the flickering flame he does not snuff out, the the bruised reed he does not break. Jesus moves towards us in our brokenness, and we see this in the fact that he says, I I have not. And so rather than Jesus just passing this man by as another another guy on the street corner asking for money, um, not making eye contact, sort of keeping about his business, Jesus engages this man. He looks at him. He sees him. He sees him in his misery. Now, this man, just in his existence, prompts a question from the disciples to Jesus, um, asking for clarity about this causal relationship between sin and suffering. Um, And what I mean by that is, like, um, their idea is that wherever suffering is, that if you go upstream of that, there is some sort of a direct connection um, between somebody or someone's parents' sin and their current suffering. And so they, they find out that this man has been blind from birth, and they ask this question in verse 2, where they said, uh, who is at fault here? Uh, verse 2 says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is that common misconception that the Jews had. This is something that, that many Jews believed, that wherever there was suffering, there was a direct cause from sin just a little bit up the road. Now, this can be true. 
that there can be a causal relationship between sin and suffering. That, that can be the case. And there are many stories throughout scripture about this causal relationship uh, between personal sin and judgment or personal sin and suffering. For example, the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah, the reason why it was destroyed was because of their sin. Um, Miriam, the, the sister of Moses, who confronted Moses and challenged his leadership, God struck her with leprosy. Her sin caused her suffering. David, who had an affair with the woman Bathsheba, conceived a son. God tells him that, that he will have a son who will die because of his sin. So you can see that there is this cadence. There is the possibility that there is a causal relationship between sin and suffering. There can be a direct connection. And it happens even today. You have pregnant mothers who make bad decisions using substances and their child has serious health complications. Um, you, you can see this in people who, who maybe are, are not good stewards. They're, they're holding back their tithe from the Lord and the Lord brings some calamity, financial hardship upon them. The sin of porn or adultery has the, the effect of destroying a home. See, sin and suffering can be connected. But in this case, in this case, it's different. In this case, the, the paradigm that the disciples have is broken with this blind man because his suffering is not necessarily, it is not, Jesus in fact tells us, it's not because he or his parents had sinned. This is what Jesus says in verse three. He says, it was not that this man had sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, what we, what we can say is that, of course, all sin, all, or all suffering, is in some way downstream from the sin of Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, um, they broke God's commands, they, they brought disorder, they brought chaos, they brought brokenness with them into the world. That is, that is a part of living in a fallen world. Yet Jesus tells not every situation of suffering is directly caused by sin. And in this case, Jesus tells his disciples, God had actually ordained this suffering. He says that, that this man hasn't sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This sickness, this suffering that this man experienced in his life was part of God's plan. Now, this is a hard truth to wrestle with. I mean, it's, it's easy when it's somebody else's suffering, like working through that. But, but when... The suffering is yours. When you're the one who's suffering and you cannot seem to trace down some sort of causal relationship between your sin or your parents' sin and suffering, it, it causes you to ask some questions. It can be confusing. It can be disoriented. How, how could God bring this into my life? How could God allow this? And, and I'm not... I wouldn't be surprised if some of you in this room or watching online are in that spot now that are, are wrestling through suffering and hardship and, and misery. 
And so what, what I would like is, is the opportunity to offer you some pastoral counsel. If this is you, here, here are some words that I, I hope you will find helpful that are grounded in, in the scriptures. First thing, in the midst of suffering, it is wise to ask the question, to examine, is this, is this actually a causal relation? Is there, is there a connection between my sin and my suffering? I think this is where we need to start. And sometimes it can be hard to navigate ourselves. We can't see the back of our head. There's things about ourselves that we're just blinded to. And so there, there are going to be times where you need to ask people in your fight club, in your missional community, can you help me? Identify. Now, I think in the story of Job, this, you know the story of Job where all kinds of calamity comes Job's way. God brings incredible hardship. And I think the beginning of the story when Job's friends come to him, that's a good, that, there's something good going on there. They're, they're trying to love their brother. Eventually it goes a little sideways, no longer very helpful, but he at least is willing to sit and contemplate and ask the question, is there a connection here? And in those questionings, we're, we're asking the spirit to search our heart. God knows our hearts better than we do. We're asking that the Lord would reveal hidden sin, sin that's been tucked away in the shadows, sin that, that maybe we, we've never, it's not, never even popped up on our radar. And if the spirit is gracious and kind to bring us to a point of conviction, to show us our sin in that, the next appropriate step is to turn in repentance to forsake your sin and run to God. And in that moment, do not, do not grow angry with God that he has brought calamity. Do, do not let bitterness take root in, in your heart. Rather, know that you are being disciplined as beloved children. Hebrews 12, verses five through eight, help key us into this mentality that, that when hardships come, it, it oftentimes can be God poking us and helping us to see where we have fallen short of his God's glory. This is the loving action of a father. Hebrews 12, five says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom the father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, it can be hard to go through some of the challenges, the suffering, the, the heartache of, of this process of receiving the Father's discipline. But know this, the Father's discipline is meant to be restorative. It's meant to be corrective, not punitive, not, not a punishment, but restorative. And we know it's not punitive because if we are in Christ, Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. He has taken the cost, the price of our sin. That kind discipline from the Father, though it stings at times, it's there to spare us from a future of even greater suffering. Now this is why, Christian parents, we must discipline our kids in the Lord. Like we, we must take what the Lord says about disciplining our children 
and take it to heart because what we're doing, we're trying to be corrective, restorative with our children, not punitive. This is a protective love. As the father has a protective love for us in discipline, so too, toward our children, we demonstrate that loving discipline. Now, if you've searched your heart, if you've asked the spirit to search your heart and, and your community has spoken in, it's like, we can't, we don't seem to find any connection between sin and your suffering. And that, that might, me, might be the case, that, that you can come to a place, uh, like the psalmist says in Psalm 1823, I was blameless before him, I kept myself from guilt, meaning that, that we were above reproach, that, that this was not necessarily a connection between my sin and my suffering. It's just the station. It's just the lot that the Lord had put before us, much like Job. Job, we see, he was not responsible for the suffering that came his way. Job was a righteous man. And he endured hard suffering. Now, in the story of Job, we see all kinds of temptations um, and Job, just through the, the midst of suffering. And, and I, do, I do think that suffering can oftentimes be a, 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 a minefield for more sin. It's hard to not grow bitter towards God. It's hard to not be angry that God would let something like this come into your life. Now, I think, I've been, I don't have time to quote this today. But I just read this incredible book this past week called Uprooting Anger. And if you're, you're a person that finds yourself in a place where you're angry at God, you're wrestling with bitterness, you, you, this, this might be a good step. But in this, as you're, you're trying to navigate righteously through your suffering, one of the things that helps us is seeing things from God's vantage point. Isaiah 55, um, verses eight and nine remind us, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There might be times where we're in the midst of suffering, and it's, it's bitter. It, it just, it's, nobody likes it. And instead of letting bitterness and anger towards God take root, what will help us is, is realizing that we don't yet have the full picture, that we don't see things from God's vantage point. And I, and I do think that if, if we were, were to adopt that, we would say something that sounds a lot like what Charles Spurgeon once said. He says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me onto the rock of ages. See, all, all of these moments of suffering are invitations from the Lord to find refuge in him. I think that's one of the things that suffering helps us do is really learn to take refuge in the Lord. And what Spurgeon says, I've learned every, every trial, every suffering that, that tosses me and jolts me about, I've learned to appreciate them because they thrust me into the arms of my Father. They thrust me into the rock of ages, who is my refuge and my shield. This is what faith looks like in the, 
in the midst. And because we don't have God's vantage point in all of life's outworkings, one of the promises that we are given that helps us is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God in his sovereignty is able to orchestrate all things, even the most bitter and undesirable things for our good and for his glory. Now, a passage like that doesn't mean that we resign. It doesn't mean that we just stop praying, we stop asking for God to move, to intercede, to to break whatever season of suffering that we have. R.C. Sproul says, we pray expectantly and confidently, not in spite of God's sovereignty, but because of it. See, it's because God is sovereign. He has the power, he has the jurisdiction, the authority to change and to move on our account for us. This is the God that we approach when we pray, God, remove me from my suffering. Do what you want to do and let this be behind me. This miracle that we see in John chapter nine is a demonstration of the sovereignty of God through his son, Jesus Christ. This miracle, this demonstration of of God's work, his power, shows us that God, in fact, can do anything he desires. But how Jesus goes about doing this miracle may seem a bit strange. In verse six and seven, uh, we see Jesus saying, as, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. There, as, as long as Jesus is here, the works of God may continue. Now, Jesus, his presence is in the, the church right now. The spirit of God is with us. He says, you are the light of the world. And so the works of God carry on what Jesus began and moved on through the apostles now is at work today in the church age. And he said these things, and he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and became, and he came back seen. Now Jesus could have just boom. Hey buddy, you can see now. Wouldn't even have to say a word. He could have, he could have done it like that. But instead, Jesus makes up some sort of spit cocktail, rubs the, the mud in his eyes, and tells him to go and wash. Now, if, if you're this guy, this is a strange encounter, friends. I don't know if you heard anybody hang tight. This is a strange thing. This guy could have experienced that then dismissed Jesus as some crazy guy. Or he could do what he did, take the initial steps of faith. I mean, it's probably out of desperation that this guy, his whole life he's been blind. He'd do anything to be able to see. And he does it. Perhaps out of desperation. And and oftentimes, God uses desperation as a means to draw people in. John 6, 37 says that all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God can use your desperation to draw you closer to him. 
The, the tendency, though, of a hardened heart is to push away. The tendency of a heart that is filled with bitterness and anger towards God is to, to not want to move towards God or, or take God up on his word in desperation, but rather say, no way. But this man, his desperation led him Jesus did for this man. The, the, the people that he grew up with in verses 8 through 13 realized, hey, this guy, he used to be a beggar. He used to be standing out on the corner asking for money, blind from birth. We all knew that. But there's this debate. Is this really him or is he really not this guy? Is it some other guy? And he, of course, testifies. It, it's me, guys. I, I'm, a, I'm the guy. I've been healed. And they ask, you know, how did this happen? And he tell, says, this man named Jesus, he, he spit in the dirt. He put the dirt in my eyes. He told me to go wash it off. And now I can see. Now, these guys are shocked. They're like, well, we better take this to our, our religious leaders. It's common practice. That, hey, we've come across something that we don't understand, so we're going to go to our religious leaders and ask for clarity, seek clarity. And so they go. Well, little do they know that these Pharisees and Jewish leaders are a bit misguided as, as we see through this, but they do that nonetheless, and this, the Pharisees, as they see this blind man, they're immediately filled with skepticism. It's like this guy's been, if you can see now, he's been faking it his whole life. He's a fraud. He's, he's a jokester, a prankster. And they try to discredit Jesus and this man, saying that this guy, he, he's been faking it. But not only that, but Jesus can't ha couldn't have healed this man because he did it on the Sabbath, and, and God doesn't listen to sinners. He's a sinner because he broke the Sabbath. And so what do they do? They pull in this man's parents to get confirmation that this guy was actually blind from birth and, in fact, blind in general, and now he can see. Now, here, here's an interesting thing. They pull him in. Verse 18. The Jews didn't believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So they confirm half of it. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Asked him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, now this is, what we're, this next verse here in verse 22 will show us that, that they're not actually presenting the whole truth. Because they're, they're motivated by fear here. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. They, they altered their story. They, they bore false witness out of fear of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, breaking fellowship, uh, disbar or barred from, from the fellowship of the Jews. Therefore, his parents say, he is of age, ask him. Now here's, we're gonna see a contrast here between the blind man and his parents. The, the parents are fully able of confirming the whole story, but because of the fear of opposition, because of the fear of being cast out of the synagogue, the temple, uh, of, being, of, of getting fellowship broken and cast away from the community, they, they bristle at opposition. They do not speak the truth. And their son, even aware of the stakes, we see the contrary. He, he doesn't bristle at the opposition. He knows what the stakes are, that if he were to say that Jesus is the Christ, that if, if he has any sort of allegiance to Jesus, that he too will be cast out. But this man doesn't bristle at opposition. And so for the second time, the religious leaders, they call the man, this is verse 24, they call the man who was 
had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. They, they think that they're robbing God of his glory because he's crediting Jesus, who's, who he thinks initially is some kind of a prophet. He says, stop, stop giving credit to Jesus. Give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I love this line. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How, how did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you, do you want to become his disciples? He's, he's sort of, he's, he's being a little sarcastic. I, I, I love that line. One thing I do know, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This Jesus guy showed up. He did some weird stuff, spit in the dirt, rubbed it in my eyes, told me to go wash in this pool, and my life changed. Once I didn't have sight, now I, I do. That is this man's testimony. The one thing this man knows is the effect that Jesus had on his life. Now, every Christian has some kind of a story like this where we say, listen, one thing I do know, like you, you might get into a heated argument with theology with somebody and it's like, oh, I don't know about the end times. I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know, I don't know the sequence of events. I, I don't know those things. But one thing I do know, I was once blind, now I see. I once, went the, once was in the dark, now I stand in the kingdom of light. I was once trapped in my sin, but now the sun has set me free indeed. One thing I do know, Jesus came into my life and everything changed. And it's not robbing God of the glory to say that was true because Jesus is God. The glory goes to the, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, glorified by this testimony. I was once was blind, but now I see. Now, surprise, surprise. What well, we see on one side, the humility of this blind man, trusting in Jesus, taking those initial steps of faith, we see the hostility, the hard hearts of the Pharisees, the Jews. They don't want to hear it. This man's already, he said, listen, you brought me in, I told my friends. You brought me into the Pharisees, I told you guys what happened. You brought my parents in, they basically told you, but they were chicken to go all the way and tell you the whole truth. And I, I told you a second time, you're not listening. The reason why you're not listening is because you don't want to hear what I have to say. And they don't. The Jews don't want to hear it. And so what do they do? Another tactic. We've seen this again and again. They, they launch false accusations against Jesus. They say he's a sinner. See, sinners, sinners can't do the will of God. But, but what this man realizes, and, and this is a beautiful, beautiful passage because one of the things that's going on in the background, like if you really to work your way through it, is is the idea of logic. Because what this man is revealing is just the illogical nature of the Pharisees. Hey, you, you say, he's saying to them, you say he couldn't have done it because he's a sinner. But guess what? I can see. There's always some kind of an illogical aspect of unbelief. 
It, it, there is. And I think this is helpful to keep in mind as we live as missionaries to our friends, families, neighbors, coworkers. There's always some sort of a logical aspect to unbelief. Now, that, that's not all there is. Because un- unbelief is a state of the heart that only God can change. But a lot of times, um, the illogical thoughts of people can keep them in unbelief. This is one of the reasons why apologetics is so important, especially if you want to, if you want to engage with a culture that is naturally hostile to the gospel, hostile, hostile to Jesus Christ. If Jesus is a sinner as they accuse him of being, it would be impossible for Jesus to, to do any of this. And so the man points out their, their fallacy in verse 30 by saying this. He says, the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Anyone opened the eyes of the man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now this, this man makes an incredible statement. This, this is a statement of faith. He, he makes this phrase in verse 31, or his statement, he says, if Jesus wasn't from God, if he was a sinner, God wouldn't listen to him because God doesn't listen to sinners. Now, the, that might be one of those things that we bristle a little bit at, but, but it's one of the, there's biblical reasons to come to this conclusion. Isaiah 1.15, God says, um, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. Proverbs 15.29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. There's there's biblical basis for this man to come to the conclusion that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. And yet, God hears Jesus. Now this guy is going through this, he's he's wrestling with the identity of Jesus. This is really what John's gospel is all about. Who is Jesus? Why does it matter? Now earlier we saw that, that they ask him, who do you think he is? Um, the, the, the Jews um, ask him this, and, and the blind man says, he is a prophet. Okay, so he's a prophet. Then we see, well, actually, he's, he's a miracle worker, some, some kind of righteous miracle worker from God. And, and this profession, this bearing witness, like giving testimony of what Jesus has done in his life, lands him in the crosshairs of the Pharisees. What his parents feared, he himself finds out for himself in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is the arrogance of the Pharisees. Who are you to tell us who Jesus is? And his worst his parents' worst fear comes true. He gets cast out. He's reviled because of Jesus. Then Jesus comes back around. See, this, this is the interesting thing. As this man, like, he's got a new lease on life, and then very suddenly, like, the things that he was probably looking forward to participating in, being part of the community in, in a more involved way, now he is shun, he's cast out, 
and now he's a lone ranger. He's got a sight, but he's a lone ranger. Then Jesus comes back around and scoops him up. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, look, there again, Jesus goes and finds him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's primed for belief. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, this man begins by saying, hey, one thing that I do know, once I had no sight, now I I can see. And now this man comes to an even greater awareness. He knows more. And in this, God is, is putting all of the pieces before him that his testimony would not just be, here's my story, but here's, here's how I can start to evangelize. See, there's a connection between your testimony of bearing witness to the things that God has done, but it's another thing completely to evangelize and say, here's the cause of this. Here's who Jesus is that had this effect on my life. That's evangelism. And so Jesus tells him, you know that son of man who's been promised to your people? That's me. The guy who gave you sight, that's me. And this man has the only fitting response. He believes and he worshiped him. Now this is what happens when Jesus shows up in your life, when Jesus works wonders. I mean, to go from darkness to light, to go from dead in your sin to alive in Christ is nothing short of a miracle because it is the work of God. And and when God has this effect in your life, you cannot help but have the same response that this man does and says, I believe and worship Christ. All of this information has been laid out on the table. This man sees it, he believes, he worships. The Pharisees, the information's there, but they do the opposite. The Pharisees hear what Jesus is saying to this man. He's hearing, they're hearing this, the claim that Jesus is the Son of Man. And they don't want to have anything to do with it. And the reason for this is they think they see, but they're truly blind. They are unaware of their need for Jesus. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? So Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. They do not understand that they are blind. They do not understand that they stand in guilt and the only remedy for their situation is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without seeing Jesus for who he is, The same is true of us. We stand yet in our sins. But for those who are blind that now have received sight through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see Jesus rightly. We see Jesus as the substitute who came into this world, lived the perfect life I couldn't live, died a sinner's death on a cross for me, was raised on the third day and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
Jesus came as our substitute. We not only see Jesus as our substitute, but we see Jesus as our mediator. See, this whole question about does God really listen to the prayers of, of sinners? It's like, if the answer is yes, I'm a little worried because I'm a sinner myself. And I'm a little concerned that God will not hear my prayers. Well, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is our mediator. He's our intercessor. So when we utter, even though, even though our heart has sin yet remaining, and our prayers may be unrefined, and misguided in some ways, Jesus takes our prayers, interprets them, intercedes, brings them to the Father on our behalf. So God the Father listens to them because the righteous one is praying for us. Like the man, we see Jesus as our healer, our deliverer. See, every, every infirmity, every bit of brokenness in our lives will have an expiration date. If Jesus is who he says he is, he's, he's conquered death, then all of our infirmities, all of our brokenness, all the suffering that we face, there will be an expiration date. He will heal us once and for all in the new heavens and new earth. He'll, he'll extract us from this world of brokenness. He'll, he'll refine it and heaven and earth will meet and forever we will be with him in a place where sin and suffering are no more. The conundrum of suffering and sin, that, that causal relationship, that whole crisis goes away because sin will be no more. Every tear will be wiped away. And when you see Jesus for these things as your substitute, as your mediator, as your healer, this changes you at your core. Blind guy undergoes is sort of a, um, it gives us a framework to understand what goes on in salvation and conversion with us. That Jesus changes us at our core and just like this man who was born blind, now he sees and is, is glad to share about what happened to him. We too, like the man, become evangelists. Like we want to see people know the real Jesus who can have a real effect on their life. Not only this life, but the life to come. And as you know Jesus as you see the power that he has in our own lives and at work through his church, this gives us the courage to stand firm and not bristle at opposition. Because here's the testimony. Once we were blind, but now we see. Once we were lost, but now I've been found. In our moment of weakness, Christ proves himself to be strong, a refuge, our strength. So by faith, we can stand firm in Christ, knowing that he upholds us. This, this blind man, his, his life has changed. A little bit for the better, a little bit more hardship, new kinds of hardship, but his faith is anchored in Christ. Church, let that be our story too, knowing that Jesus showed up, he's changed our lives. That he, he's, he's given us a story to testify to who he is and what he's done, that we would be fruitful in our evangelism, that we would be people who abide in the word of Christ, never bristling in opposition, 
because his word is true and his word remains. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sending your son. We thank you, God, that, that in our weakness, in our suffering, you are near to the brokenhearted. You will not crush a, a weak spirit. Your plan is for us, not against us. And so whatever it is that we're going through in our, our lives, Lord, we ask that you would teach us to run to you, that you would be our refuge and our strength, that you would be our, our life source. And God, as we are people who have been changed by you, would you send us out as your witnesses to the city and the world that we would testify that Jesus is the Christ, that he is our redeemer, those who have no hope now have hope in Christ. We pray this for your glory, that we may rightly give you the glory and the praise that is due to your name. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.